Welcome to episode 25 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. Check out all the shows. You can find them at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. So we wrap up the first half of this podcast series looking at suicide in the military-affiliated population. We thought that it would be helpful to bring on a guest that can give us a perspective on suicide prevention efforts in other countries. Shauna, what can you tell us about today's guest? Yes, yeah, so Sue Freeth is the chief executive for the UK-based organization Combat Stress. Combat Stress focuses on veterans' mental health and particularly military trauma health care. Sue Freeth joined Combat Stress following a decade as Director of Welfare and latterly Director of Operations at the Royal British Legion. At TRBL, she commissioned the first UK veterans population mapping studies and initiated and led the early stages of the Armed Forces Covenant campaign. During her tenure at the Royal British Legion, she opened its 16 high street pop-in centers and tripled its services. As you said, Dwayne, we thought it would be helpful to listen to someone with the perspective of how suicide prevention is being addressed in other countries. Yes, I was really glad that we were able to get Sue to come on the show. We'll get into the conversation and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. One of the things that we're trying to do with this series is talk about sort of defining the problem, but also coming up with the solutions. And we thought it would be interesting to get a different perspective from the UK, from your experience on suicide prevention in military and veteran populations. What do you see as some of the things that may be unique when it comes to addressing suicide in UK veterans compared to what you know of what we're doing over here? I suppose one aspect is this sort of long history of charitable organizations and perhaps the relationship that the support sector has with our National Health Service and with the armed forces. So an individual has a number of choices in terms of looking for support. And that's proved to be, I think, a positive aspect I think so. For example, you know, an individual can reach out to us. We have a reputation for working with veterans with complex needs. Um, if if they finally have found how to get hold of us, they may not want to reach out to any veteran-related organisation, but actually may well know about an organisation called Samaritans, which has been set up really. Uh, I think it's it's 30 or 40 years old and it is uh, entirely a listening service for people who are at the point where they've lost hope and it, it isn't veteran specific there is national funding though for them to provide a, a service directly to veterans and it's promoted directly through the armed forces through defense to veterans or there are 
the military's own services either it's health services or indeed there are a number of lines that you can reach into so i think there are we've got quite a lot of choices for an individual being a relatively small country in relation to the states i think if you have the confidence at that point which of course many don't that there are a number of ways which should those those choices i think are beneficial and I don't know whether they have anything to do with the incidence rate, probably very little, but it feels like they create a different environment. I think that's one aspect. I think veterans in the UK spend less time away from their family. So I think that might assist individuals. So I think in terms of some of the differences, uh, and then I think the means, to me what struck me most by the, the event coming along to the conference was that the means were so very different in the UK if when people finally get to that point then they are in the States and the kind of elephant in the room bit, I guess, but the, the lack or the, the reduced access to firearms clearly has a significant difference. For, for UK veterans than it might do in the states where they're much more widely. The, the highest likelihood is suffocation or hanging in, in the UK if you take your own life as opposed to uh, firearms considerably yeah, greater number than it, than it is in the, in, in the states. So I think those are the two very, seem to me like the two most obvious differences. It is. It is. One of the things that, that I have heard, and whether it's beneficial or not beneficial, but the UK doesn't necessarily have a veterans administration in the way that we do here, right? The National Health Service is not just veterans specific. And I've heard from some of my fellow veterans in the UK where that can be both beneficial sometimes, but also a barrier. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Um, you're absolutely right. In terms of it not it being a barrier, about two years ago, we've actually had a 24-hour helpline, which was originally set up, I think, seven or eight years ago, for veterans after a major mental health review. And that line has always, however, taken calls from serving personnel and their families and largely been about encouraging people to ask their in-service health provider or their senior officer or a peer if they were at that point to kind of reach out and that's largely what we did for the serving community. Two years ago there was a campaign by one of the previous chiefs of staff for a line specifically for armed forces personnel and I think after some wrangling and discussions we we agreed that we would front that line. We used the same team as the team that we used to support veterans but what was additional is we were able to have direct referral routes into the local NHS uh, service provider for the serving community for that particular unit and we had sort of fast track ability to do that and we've run that line for two years and it hasn't had a huge amount of um, people have not a huge amount of people have used it but I think we must have had two or three thousand people have used it and those will be family members as well as, as individuals and, and not necessarily a suicide call but a kind of what do I feel like this is this something I should do something about we usually take about 15,000 calls a year in our veterans line, so much smaller. I think less than five people have been willing to give us their name and willing to make that referral. So unfortunately, 
we have not been able to overcome that reticence. Now, I think there's lots of reasons for that. One of them actually is probably the Ministry of Defence not really wanting to set this line up. And once it was set up, yes, there was a fanfare in the Ministry of Defence, were very pleased, and there was a little bit of um, promotion of it. But then actually, I think it never really got the extra communication push that it needed. People have found it, but that, that reticence to share this sort of information or to allow us to enable people to do that just hasn't happened. And we feel felt very frustrated by that and, and, and a great shame, really, because it felt like a really missed opportunity. So that reticence to raise your mental health needs when you're serving them, but I think is still very, very prevalent. And whilst there are initiatives by Defence to address that, there still is a sense that if you have a, and, and there is a push being led currently actually last year or so by defence, particularly supported by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex to get a real kind of a whole well-being uh, approach for people who are serving. I still think there, is, there are elements of mental health that are still very difficult to raise and very difficult to, to get fully embraced. There's still a worry about it if it's at the kind of extreme end, the more serious end of mental health. Well-being is a safe end and the defence seems to feel comfortable with that. I think the end where you really need help seeing at the hopeless point is still one of the things we all have to work very hard on. And I often say definitely where we're looking at is the challenges we're having with veteran suicide happen in our Department of Defense. And that's obviously the same thing as your Ministry of Defense. But what I see from the outside looking in is that community organizations like yours are stepping up more to do veteran-specific stuff, not to say that NHS isn't doing anything. But here, sort of the community idea is, well, the Veterans Administration, they take care of veterans, right? The Department of Defense and then the Veterans Administration and sort of community is this tertiary thing where your community involvement in veteran suicide is primary. Oh, oh, I mean, absolutely. And I think in the veteran space, we are our helpline number and our services are promoted by the NHS. We do have some small contracts with delivering support, particularly for that complex end in each of the devolved nations. And we are recognised for being specialists in that field. And we will be directly referred actually including by people who who might go into mental health support while they're serving, although we're not allowed to provide treatment to veterans who are serving. We might be able to give their their doctor or their psychologist some advice. We might give secondary opinion on medication, but we aren't able to go beyond that. But yes, we're definitely, I think, recognised as specialists in the field. I mean, we've been for a charity. We've been around for over 100 years now. So we do have, I think, real credentials in this field and most of the people who we spend most of our time with are veterans who have had chronic and and will have chronic needs in this area and who've got multiple traumas from multiple campaigns they've been exposed in and may even have brought in uh, vulnerabilities as a young trainee which alongside their military experience presents for them a really complex uh, medical history that basically the NHS and definitely defence would really struggle to deal with on their own. 
And that's another thing that I, I think I saw as a similarity. I often describe our militaries as much a running away from something as a running to something, right? We carry into the military everything that happened to us as children. And that's a point that I saw that you had brought in from yeah. your presentation in which you just referenced, but sort of this length of time thing. I, I saw in your presentation also that you have high rates of older veteran deaths by suicide. For you, it's primarily veterans of the Falklands campaign. For us, of course, it's our Vietnam and Korean War veterans and an increasing rate of younger veterans, which are the Afghanistan and Iraq veterans. Could you speak to the differences maybe generationally when it comes to suicide? I, I, I can. I'm not, I'm not a, a, a specialist particularly, but I think certainly from the organization's experience, I mean, I think they are very different. Um, their experiences have been different in terms of also how they've been responded to. Falkland veterans feel very neglected here. There was no mental health package for returning Falklands veterans. Their experience was very intense. It was a long way away from home. And I think when they came home, they experienced that kind of surge of euphoria from the nation. And then they were felt very dropped. And I think we had a very difficult experience with a Portland's veteran two years ago. And this was a veteran who had had a lot of support from us as a charity over the years but I think still was left with a sense of feeling neglected and was a very difficult person, had a complex uh, situation at home. And anyway, kind of, we lost touch with him, he lost touch with us, but he still had that burning uh, feeling of neglect. He's a very articulate uh, veteran. And uh, he suddenly turned up one morning and decided to, to set up a suicide watch outside one of our treatment centers. And he was there for two months and we tried almost everything to engage with him. It was a very difficult experience for him, very difficult actually for everybody involved, very complex to try to manage. And, and actually our workforce found it incredibly difficult. It was a very vociferous social media campaign too. So it was a great deal, it felt like it was a great deal of harm being done both to veterans we were helping as well as veterans that um, were kind of watching this going on. Um, but we kind of got through it. And I mean, interestingly, about six months after, he walked into our service one morning and finally agreed to see our medical director, who actually has a long history of working with him, and uh, kind of made his peace. And part of what he was looking for was trying to make up for that feeling of neglect. But, but I think to me it highlighted how difficult it was to engage with him as opposed to, I don't think have had that experience with recent uh, veterans. They may have lots of opinions about what they need and the organisations available to help them. But once they engage with each other, and we do quite a lot of group work, as soon as they find people with that common experience and they, they, they quickly put a lot of that kind of um, anger and frustration away. Um, one of the programs we provide is an anger management program. It's, it's often one of the first programs people engage with. And this is I imagine. So yes. I'm just like us. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely, yes. Uh, so I think that younger group feels like there's a lot of help out there. It may not fit them, but they don't have this enormous feeling of rejection 
and feeling ignored. And I would say those are the two biggest differences. And I think the, the difficulty with the Falklands veteran is that they have developed sort of really chronic problems and really run away from those. And so dealing with them is, is incredibly difficult. And I don't think any agency finds it. I mean, if we find it difficult and we work with the most difficult group, then this is a group of people who most agencies just don't know how to handle it. And having had this recent experience, I think even our staff who, who are very empathetic and go, you know, the extra, extra mile, were getting very hurt and frustrated by not being able to break through in the way that they, have norm- they normally are able to do relatively quickly. Before I came to work in the veteran sector, I actually worked in disabilities. I've worked in the third sector in my whole of my career. And one of the things I have learned throughout it really is that if you have aggrieved a group of people, as soon as you recognise that, you really do need to try to um, bring them close. Because if you kind of spend years denying that um, responsibility, it is so damaging for individuals and it's so damaging for governments and for organisations. So painful as it is, it is much better to come together and try and work it out. It's, it's all the effort often goes into trying to sort of obfuscate and avoid apologies and so on. But actually, the sooner you make up, the better. I think that's a great example of the necessity of not having a one-size-fits-all approach, right? What's working for the Falkland veterans might not be working even for the Falkland veterans, but definitely what is working for the younger Iraq and Afghanistan veterans isn't working for that. And so it sounds like, and again, this, what we hear is that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach from era to era, but almost even from veteran to veteran. No, absolutely. And in fact, I mean, we're part of a group of veteran charities. And we, we all do slightly different things, but we also play slightly different roles. So we do tend to build relationships with groups of, of veterans who and individuals. And very often, it's one agency that's got that trust. And you have to act through that agency. And it's, I think certainly the charities that I've worked in have, have recognised that. And sometimes you think an individual employee will say or a casework will say, look, I might not be the best person to do this, but I'm the person this individual trusts. And I think you have to work on that basis. So I think that's actually where the NHS has challenges here it's a general universal service it has some great people in it who uh, have done some great work in in developing a veteran-centric service so there's a a GP champion service which is growing but still embryonic we have trusts leading in certain regions but you you are not going to get as veteran-centric an experience from going into their service as you will when you walk through the doors of Combat Stress or you walk through the doors of another charity, Help the Heroes, which has particularly developed a really good relationship with the physically injured community. And veterans who've lost a limb or several uh, may well want to have their mental health needs met through them because they've built that trusting relationships with individuals um, rather than, if you like, breaking off and coming to us. I mean, we do manage that reasonably well, I think, now. But I, I certainly, and it's matured over the years. But I think still people tend to build a relationship with one agency who is a kind of go-to place where they feel most at home. And you have to work with that. 
It's great to hear. I mean, obviously, I think probably from what you might have seen over here is we do have a a plethora of agencies almost duplicating a lot of services because everybody wants to do this, right? They want to help veterans. Uh, One of the things that that we really focus on in this show, but also in general, is we're aware of the problem here, right? And we need to move beyond awareness into action. What sort of action steps do you see are effective in working with UK veterans who are struggling maybe with suicide or some of these crises? I think the focus has been on um, awareness raising of places to go to ask for help. I was really taken with the public health approach that DUS is adopting. I can understand why it really made sense to me. And I think given the nature of the the states involved, you can see how that would benefit. I have to say, I came back, you know, really thinking there are elements of it that really would be well translatable here. But it's not the approach that the, the UK is currently taking. I think it's still adopting a sort of, its focus is still part of a general, there isn't a specific veteran suicide strategy, there is a national suicide strategy. Yes, individual functions and departments with responsibilities are taking up their aspects of that. And they are focusing largely on making people aware of where to ask for help and um, making organisations, their own staff, aware of how to identify people. So that's where the push is. But we are actually some way behind you. We had a study which is nearly 10 years old now, and there's a new study being done uh, by the same university, Manchester University, and we're waiting really for the results of this. So we don't really have facts yet on which to develop the strategy that is currently led by the Department of Health. And so at the moment is really still a very, is very generalised strategy. And I, and I think our experience is those sorts of approaches do not work well for the veteran community. It tends to work, it's much more effective if you can talk to people in their own language and give them examples of individuals who look and feel like them so the way we've been approaching it is we've been using our centenary this year to record the stories of of veterans who we've worked with who've never really been able or wanted to share their stories in detail before but actually four or five of them are stories of people who were at the point where they were about to take their own lives and so this is and we produce this film we've been taking it around the country and we would have been highlighting it in this uh, actually next week which is um, national mental health week here and i think what particularly strikes that every time i've seen this this um film played at least one person in the audience has stood up and finally been able to talk about how they felt hopeless and i think that's one of the reasons why we felt so privileged that veterans were willing to tell these really difficult stories they're not ones we would normally or they would normally want to have out there but I think the more we do in that area, the more likely you are going to get people to, to be willing to seek help. So I think you've, you've got to have tailored approaches, but we're not there yet, I'm afraid, as a nation. I, I really appreciate that perspective. And I think it's important as we talk about our suicide prevention efforts here in the States, we can get frustrated and overwhelmed and seems like nothing is happening and nobody's solving this problem. So we need more people to solve the problem and everything. But to hear you say, 
from your perspective, looking in the outside, you're actually looking to take some of the elements of what we're doing because you can see it's effective. I, I think that's a point that we need to hear over here is to say that not all hope is lost. We are at least moving in the right direction. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And, and, and I thank you. I, I often say that those of us who served have more in common with our coalition partners who served and those are neighbors that we don't. So Brit vets are as much of a brother. So thank you for taking care of the veterans that you take care of in the UK. And I just, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting us and good luck with the work you're doing. This is Doc Springer. My new book, Warrior, is out. I don't always get a book endorsement, but when I do, it's from the world's most interesting man. Hello, my friends. These are difficult times that we are all going through. So many people offer opinions on this COVID-19 situation, what to do, how to cope. So you don't know whose perspective to listen to. I would like to suggest to you a doctor, Dr. Shona Springer. She has worked for years with our warriors. She is extremely insightful and can give you all kinds of good information. I would like to recommend her book. It is called Warrior. It is important. There is information that can do good things for you. So I recommend it. Doc Springer, thank you. The book is called Warrior. Adios, amigos. Good health. Stay well. Stay isolated, but not alone. Adios. Sue presented at the VADOD Suicide Prevention Conference in 2019, giving her perspective on suicide prevention efforts in the UK. What stood out to you during our conversation? You know, I was so floored to hear one particular point made by Sue Freeth that I had to listen twice to make sure I heard it correctly. She said two or 3,000 people who called into the UK crisis support line specifically stood up for active duty members of the British military service. Of that number, less than five people were willing to give their names. This is yet another confirmation that stigma about seeking mental health services is one of our biggest barriers and should be, in my mind, one of our biggest priorities of focus, both in the UK and here in America. Stigma shifts when we hit a tipping point in our understanding that mental health challenges are normal, that even the strongest and the bravest of us may struggle at times, and that there is effective help available that can be accessed without negative consequence. And to all who have used their story of struggle in brave and vulnerable ways to give others permission to confront their struggles in turn, I just wanted to say thank you. That's an interesting point. This is a very personal issue, right? We don't talk about other personal issues. We don't talk about any mental health diagnoses, although that does apply to the stigma, but other personal things just in the general public. I wonder how we balance this reducing the stigma versus keeping personal stuff personal. Not like keeping secrets in the family, but there are certain things that we just don't talk about in polite company. Yeah. As you said, it's personal, but I think as well, there's a fear of negative consequences and people are often I've heard them say, well, it probably won't happen. 
But the stakes are so high that unless we hit a tipping point in understanding that it is not going to happen, unless the situation is a danger to other people, for example, I just, I don't know how we crack that nut without really focusing on how do we get service members services that feel truly safe and confidential from where they do business. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's one thing, and and I'm talking about those things we don't talk about at parties, and this isn't at parties. This is a confidential helpline. This is people revealing things in a place of safety and confidence, whether it's their religious leader or their therapist or something like that. I, I agree that we may not be all the way there yet, but then also we need to figure out where do we stop so that we're not just putting all the business out? Yeah, yeah. The other point that Sue made is she mentioned something that's been a repeated theme in the podcast, that much of the trauma that may need to be addressed by those who serve in the military has not come from the military, but from the years prior. This is such an important point that she makes, which echoes the themes of other suicide prevention experts that you've interviewed for the podcast in the past. From my perspective, to hear the same theme from a suicide prevention leader in the UK is further confirmation that we need to correct the myth that military service necessarily causes trauma. And there's another myth related to this, which is that if you have trauma from before the military, then service in the military will leave you worse off. As I've written about for Psychology Today, it's no coincidence that individuals who have suffered from trauma as children are often drawn to military service. For many who enlist in the military, the promise of being professional-grade fighters is an alluring defense against hidden feelings of vulnerability. Many have explained to me that the military also offered the promise of an environment of predictability and clear rules and expectations. In other words, they're seeking safety in the structure and shared ethos of warriorship. In some cases, service members have experiences that make their trauma much more deeply ingrained. For example, in the context of toxic leadership, where they encounter bullying or hazing or sexual abuse, this further trauma can lead to profound psychological damage. But you know who we don't typically account for? The countless number of people that come away from their time in the military feeling empowered and much healthier than when they entered the military service. And this I've seen repeatedly within those in my network of veteran friends and warriors that I've served in the past decade. I would love to see us all start thinking more critically about these kinds of widespread myths and start to develop a more nuanced understanding of the interaction between military service and trauma. You know, I appreciate that you bring that up. And I mentioned it, I actually talk about it fairly often as a clinical mental health counselor, is that we bring what baggage we have into the military with us, right? The military is much as a running away from something as it is running towards something. And those adverse childhood experiences do impact uh, a lot of veterans. And the other point that you have is it doesn't mean that that individual is automatically going to have PTSD or they come in broken. I personally would like to see an adverse childhood experience study done on our elite warriors, the special forces, right? Because anecdotally, and, and a number of them have told me this, is somehow all the Green Berets just had really messed up childhoods and it fostered a resilience that made them stronger as opposed to uh, turning them into broken. And so I, I agree there is that childhood trauma that needs to be addressed, but it doesn't mean that you're automatically going to get PTSD or anything like that. 
Yeah, in fact, the military may help you get to a better place in your life because some of the best leaders that I've known and served and worked with are military leaders that approach their life with a military ethos of they have standards for themselves and for other people and they apply them in a fair and transparent way. And when they do that, it can be healing for people that need predictability and structure. And so some of the mentoring and modeling that happens by the really, really good military leaders is so helpful and healing for people that come in with past trauma. And so I just think the military gets a really bad rap sometimes as a place where damage is necessarily done. And that's just not the truth of it. No. And yes, damage can be done, but damage can be done in any situation. Yes, we do have an inherently dangerous occupation, but the idea of having the individual understand, and as you said, having the leadership understand that this is an impact, we have to be able to, to make sure that both while we're in the service and then after the service, understand what impacts our childhood had on us. Exactly. And I think that the thing is that because of the rank structure and the way that power is held in the military, it's a place where there's potential to do great damage, or it can be wonderfully healing for people to have good leadership and good structure. So it's a a high stakes environment, but a lot of the time it goes the right direction. That's absolutely right. And I think those are some great points. We appreciate everybody taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to look at the show notes at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS25, where you can get the links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1, chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838-255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.